Hallelujah. I just got a great praise report. We, uh, we support a lot of different missionaries. And uh, one of the missionary groups that we, we uh, if you wonder where everybody's at, a lot of people are out here getting ready for our Acts 2 dinner. So, so uh, just bear with us. A lot of people on vacation. But uh, we support Chi Alpha out at Virginia Tech, uh, Anthony uh, Saladino and Michelle Saladino. And they're having their mission, their mission move in. Um, people are coming back for school. And so uh, they helped the students move in. And last year they had 10 people commit their life to Christ on the day that they moved into the college. He said, we're believing God for 30 salvations this year. And he, he texted uh, Timmy and some other people, said we had 53 students commit their life to Christ moving into the college this year. Let's give God a praise for that. Amen, amen, amen. Well, praise the Lord. Uh, we want to welcome you this morning. We want to welcome those that are joining us by stream. I believe that our people on vacation, you're watching right now. If you're not, I'm going to find out why when you get back. Amen. <laughs> So if you take your Bibles out, if you would, please, and turn with me to the gospel according to Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 25. I don't know if you want me to call you out, brother, but I see somebody in the congregation this morning that I need to recognize. But we have our former district superintendent this morning with us, Brother Ken Burtham and his wife. God bless you guys. It's good to see you. Amen. Amen. Now I am nervous. <laughs> Matthew chapter 25, if you'll look there with me, getting at verse 1. It says, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be like unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were wise took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose, they trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. And that's a key verse. You need to take note of that. Our lamps have gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore. For ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Now, it's debatable among many theologians what exactly this is representing. The five foolish virgins, are they people that heard the gospel and didn't receive it? You know, and then there's others that say they heard the gospel. And like Jesus, for the example, when he said the sower goes out to sow the seed, some of the seed falls by the wayside. Satan comes quickly. The, the, the seed is the Word of God. Satan comes quickly and steals it away. But some of that seed fell on thorny grounds. And he described the thorny grounds as the seed began to grow, but he says that the cares of life and the deceitfulness of riches choked out the Word. In other words, it took root and began to grow. They received the seed, 
John 1.12 says, As many as received him, to them gave he power to be the sons of God, even those that believe on his name. So when you receive the word of God, that's the same as receiving salvation. But the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of his riches choked it out, and it died. And it said some of it fell on stony grounds. And so when tribulations came and trials came, it, it died because it had no root. So they, the controversy is whether or not this is speaking of people who have been in Christ and then let their light go out, or whether they never were in Christ to begin with. I believe there's overwhelming evidence in Scripture that says these were all the same thing. There weren't five harlots and five virgins. They were all virgins. They were all the same thing. And so uh, the Bible says that in the last days, scoffers are going to come and say, where is your coming, Lord? Because since our fathers fell asleep, everything's the same as it is today. And I believe that's describing what, what's happening here. Five of these, I believe, born again, part of the church, they became foolish. And they let their oil run out. They let their light go out. Because it was once burning. Once they had oil as representative of the Holy Spirit. All right? The Bible says that you're the light of the earth. You don't take a light and set it under a basket. You put it upon a hillside so that all can see it. We're supposed to have a testimony of Jesus Christ. If people want to know what Jesus is like, they should be able to look at you and I. Amen? Come on. He says, as he is, so are we in the earth. People should be able to see Jesus in you. That is your light. And the question is, is does your light burn today? Is the Holy Spirit guiding you and directing you? Because I don't want to do this on my own, church. I don't. Pray, God, guide me. I want to be moved and, and directed and anointed by the Holy Spirit. How about you? Amen? Amen. Now, I read an article by a pastor. He's a Church of God pastor. I don't really know him. His name was Jim Kane. I just happened to come across it. And he was talking about prioritizing time. And some of his list, I, th I thought was over, they overlapped. He had seven different things you should prioritize. And, for example, he, he, he had spiritual growth as one of the things you should prioritize and personal growth. I think they're one and the same. Personal growth is a reflection of your spiritual growth. Come on, if your personal growth means you have a person of integrity, you're, you're a man of honor, you, you know, you're dependable, you're reliable and all that, that's because there's some spiritual growth that's happened in you. And if there is no spiritual growth, then you're going to be irresponsible and, and, and non-dependable and not a person of honor. So I think, anyway, they were, some of them overlapped. So I, I condensed it down to four things. Now, in the article, he said, quote, stewardship is about balance. Good stewardship is our in our lives is about making time for these important areas of life. They are all important. They are a part of being God's steward, God's manager, God's servant. He went on to say, we are responsible for our lives and our actions. If we have made the choices to follow God through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then we are stewards. We are managers of God's kingdom. And like working for someone else, there are certain expectations present. God expects us to be involved in the ministry of a local church. He has given us gifts and talents, and as part of the stewardship of our life, he expects us to identify, develop, and use them as members of his family. And then he quoted R.G. Lee, Robert G. Lee. That's not Robert E. Lee. 
Just so we're clear on that. Robert G. Lee, all right, he was the, actually the president of the Southern Baptist Convention for three consecutive years, 1949, 50, and 51. He's famous most of all for the sermon he preached on payday someday. I think every Baptist preacher that's ever drawn breath has probably preached that sermon from our Robert G. Lee. But he quotes him, and this is what Robert G. Lee said, quote, if you had a bank that credited your account each morning with $86,400 that carried no balance from day to day. It allowed you to keep no cash in your account and finally every morning canceled whatever part of the amount you had failed to use during the day. What would you do? Draw out every cent, of course. In other words, if you're going to put that money in your bank, and tomorrow it's going to be zeroed out, and he's going to put it back in again, and if you don't use it, he's going to zero it out the next day. What are you going to do? Brother, I'm going to have a big box in my backyard, and there's going to be a ton of money in there because I'm taking out $86,400 every day and putting it in that box. Amen? Come on. Well, you have such a bank. It is called time. Every morning it accredits you with 46,400 seconds. Every night it rules off as lost. Whatever of this you have failed to invest to good purpose, it carries no balance. It allows no balance. It allows no overdraft. Each day the bank named Time opens a new account with you. Each night it burns the record of the day. And if you fail to use the day's deposit, the loss is yours. Then he says, take off your watch. Hold them up. If you had a personal calendar, get it out and hold it up. We don't use those things nowadays, but you can hold up your cell phone, all right? Hold it up. We all have the same amount of time. And if you're going to exercise good stewardship, then we must give our time back to God and ask for his help in using it in the ways that will advance his kingdom and his purpose. Amen? Come on, we should be, we sing that, that, that song that it's all about Jesus. We're, it's all about the rock. It's all about him providing, and it's all about us serving him. And that should be our priorities. Four things that I listed as our priorities in life, which agreed with him, spiritual growth, your spiritual health. Our relationship to God and our fellowship with him is above all else, the most important thing in our life or at least it should be. Personal growth, of course, is, I believe, our character and all that is a reflection of that spiritual growth. The second priority in life is your physical health and your fitness. It doesn't matter what you try to do for other people or your family or anything else. If you don't take care of yourself, you are of little benefit to anybody else. So you need to take care of yourself. <clears throat> you need to eat, exercise, and rest properly. All right? You need to abstain from things that shorten or limit your life or your potential. The third thing is a priority is your family life. Next to your personal and health and fitness and your spiritual life, your family is the most important priority in your life. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1 through 8 talks about this, and it's actually talking about widows. If there's widows among you, and they are actually widows indeed, meaning they don't have a niece, they don't have children, they don't have anybody to care for them, they are depending on God. They spend their day in prayer, the Bible says. You're to take care of them. And then he goes on and says, because if you don't care for those that's in your own house, you're worse than an infidel. You've departed the faith. So we need to take care of our families. 
That means you need to get up and go to work. Because this includes your financial management, which was one of the priorities he set aside, and your work ethics, which I think they're all a part of taking care of your family. You need to get up and go to work. I believe if you don't have the first two priorities in order, this one won't be in order either. If you're not taking care of yourself, all right, if you're not taking care of your spiritual growth, you're not going to take care of your family either. If there's no spiritual growth, you have no character. There's no honor or integrity, or you'll be irresponsible, independable. And as a result, your work will suffer, your finances will suffer, and your family will suffer. Also, your physical. If you don't take yourself physically, you're out of shape. If you're up late vegging out on TV and you can't get up to go to work, come on. Young people, I love you. God bless you. But if you're up all night playing video games, huh? And then, it's, and then you're late for work. Your boss man wants to know why you're late, and you're sitting there, and you're trying to stay awake working. Mm-hmm. Come on, somebody. You lay around the house in a stupor because of substance abuse. You always got a buzz. Drugs, alcohol. I'm down on those things, guys. I know that marijuana has been legal, but I can tell you, I, as a former connoisseur of the weed, <laughs> I can tell you it kills your initiative. You don't have the initiative to get up and go to work. Just saying. Getting quiet in here. Say amen so I, I don't think I'm stepping on your toes. And then, of course, the number fourth and the last one is your social life. I believe this includes your fellowship to the church. Next to yourself and your family, we need to be involved in each other's life. Most importantly, we need to win souls. All right? You can't win souls if you don't socialize with people. We need to get out. I don't want to. I went on. A, I'm, I'm an introvert by nature. You wouldn't know that. I preach, but I am an introvert by nature. I heard a very famous man one time say at our district council, and he, I just want to go up and hug him. He said, when I kiss my wife goodbye and I walk out the door, my social needs are met for the day. Do you remember somebody saying that, Brother Ken? No, you don't remember saying it. Yeah. I'm that guy, you know. But I need to be around people because need, people need to know what the treasures that we have in us. So social life is important. It's, in, it's important to socialize with other people and win souls. Besides, the Bible says we need to love our neighbors like we love ourselves. If I'm going to take care of myself, take care of my family, I need to care about my neighbors too. Yeah. So I thought on these things, and I concluded that where and how we spend our time reveals what we really do see as our priority. And when I read the parable of the ten versions, it became clear that five of them had their priorities straight, and five of them didn't. Five of them were wise. They were mindful and responsible and dependable, and they were prepared. They were good stewards of their time. Five of them weren't. They all had the same understanding. They knew what was expected of them. They knew why they were there and where they, what was going to happen. They knew the bridegroom's coming. They all knew that. We all know that. Amen? I hope you know that. The wise, to them, the wedding which Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's like this wedding. 
And five of them, that was their priority. That wedding was the most important thing in their life, and they kept their eye on that. The foolish, who knows what they were thinking? Second Peter says that in the last days there's going to be scoffers. It's going to be like, Where is it? When, when's he coming? I've heard that all my life. Where is he? Since the fathers fell asleep, everything is going on just like it is, and they begin to get their focus on other things, things that didn't really matter. So the kingdom of God was not their priority. Church, is it our priority? That's the question we face this morning. What is your priority? Father, we ask in Jesus' name, Lord, for the anointing of your Holy Spirit, God, to come as I preach your word. Lord, I pray that you help me, God, to preach it with accuracy and truth, Lord. God, above all things, I want to preach truth, Lord. Just recently, a man told me I was a liar. I was lying. Lord, I have never in my life known what the truth was and deliberately distorted it in order to deceive someone in this pulpit. Lord, I want to know the truth. God, help me to preach the truth and treat, preach it with accuracy, Lord. And Father, I pray not only that you anoint me as I preach, Lord, anoint us as we hear, God, that we will listen to you with our heart, God. Because, Lord, I believe your voice is crying out today to the church, Lord. Wake up. Wake up. The bridegroom cometh. And we need to keep our focus on that. So, oh, God, I pray that you just help us today, Lord, to know what you're saying to the church in these last days. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, in many places in Scripture, Jesus talks about the wedding, and a lot of the th comparisons he makes to the kingdom of God is related to the wedding. And the ancient, ancient Jewish wedding is much different than what we see in weddings today. Because what would happen is if a young man saw a young lady that he was interested in, the very first thing that he would do is, of course, he would go up and have a conversation with her. And then if he realized this, this, I believe, is the one that God has for me, he would say, I want you to come to my father's house and meet my father. Isn't that a picture of Jesus coming for his bride? Then he would go and sit down in the father's house, and they would talk for a while, and then he would bring out what is called the ketubah. This is our ketubah. In the ketubah, there was a covenant. There's a covenant between the two parties that's going to be married. And in it, it reads the responsibilities of the bride, and it reads the responsibilities of the bridegroom. And in it, the bridegroom says, this is what I have for you. I'm going to love you with an everlasting love. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And it goes down all the list of what Christ is going to do. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to be your provider. I'm going to provide your riches according to your, all your needs, according to my riches and glory, and et cetera, and so forth. And then... It, it gives you the requirements for the bride as she waits. It says you, you're to be a chaste virgin. You're to have your garments without spot nor wrinkle. And you're to separate yourself unto me and me alone. And I, I'm to be the desire of your heart. And, and so once they've agreed to that, then they bring out what they're going to give to the bride. Because the dowry was for the bride, not for the bridegroom. And then he brings out all the gifts that he's going to give to you. I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you the, the words of knowledge and words of wisdom and discernment and, and prophecy and in tongues and interpretation. All these things I'm going to give to you because you're going to be my bride. And then the bride would go get her bridegrooms and they would go and wait for the bridegroom. The bridegroom says, I am going to go prepare a place for you. Huh? That sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
because in my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I'm going to prepare a place for you, and when I come again, I will bring you unto myself. It's a picture of the Jewish wedding. And so what they would do is the Jewish young man would go and add on to his father's house a place for him and his bride. And the place that he has built for them would be ready when the father said so. And so when the father says, okay, the house is ready, go and get your bride. The bride would, groom would usually come at midnight, unannounced, and he would come with the sound of the shafar, with the trumpet. And then they would declare, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Come ye out to meet him. And then the bride with all of her bridesmaids would get up and go out to meet the bridegroom, and then they would go into the, to the, to the wedding. So that's what's being described here. Are you seeing this, church? Well, that's what happened in the parable. Only five of them, they had gotten their eyes off on the wrong thing, and they weren't ready to go out and meet him. Now, what is our focus on? Do we live our lives being mindful and responsible and dependable and prepared, good stewards of our time, living like we really do believe that the bridegroom is coming and he could come before I get out of this pulpit this morning? We believe in the imminent return of Christ. In other words, there's nothing else in prophecy that has to be fulfilled before he comes. He can come this second. You might be a heartbeat away from eternity. Are you mindful of that? Because we get our eyes on many things other than that. And church, I'm not here to throw stones. We are all guilty of this. I am a very blessed man. I'm very blessed, and I'm very grateful. Jeannie and I, we, we got a house that's not real big, but we love it. We call it a cottage. It's a little place down by the river. And, and I, I, I got a sawmill thanks to Tim Burkett. God bless you, brother. And I took a, logs, and I sawed those logs up, and I built me a carpenter shop, and I loved to get out in that carpenter shop and tinker. The rain was splashing on the front door, so I built a little front porch on it just to keep the rain from splashing on the front door. And that has become my prayer closet. Jeannie put two rocking chairs out there, and I sat out there with a rocking chair in my Bible, and I watched the traffic go by, I read the Bible, and pray. And I love that place. Jeannie and I was sitting there this summer, and I'm sitting there with my Bible, and she, she brings me stuff to eat, and I'm sitting there, and I've listened to the Bob White's whistle, and I'm thinking, God, you have blessed us abundantly above and beyond what we could ask or think. To some people, that might be like, that's just a shack. No, that's a mansion to me. To me, I, I love it, and I'm blessed. Because it's the first place in my life that I've had a place to call home. Because when I was five years old, my dad entered into the seminary. He went into the ministry. He was a Southern Baptist pastor. When I was eight years old, we moved for the very first time. He took his first church. And then we kept moving. I went to nine different schools in 12 years. Then when I got on my own, I went into construction, became a pipe fitter and a pipe welder, and I kept on moving. We finally, in 1982, we decided we were going to, God was wanting us to go into ministry. We entered Bible college. Went three years there. In my fourth year, they sent me into New England to help plant the church up there. I didn't hear from God. Jeannie didn't hear from God. I didn't have a peace, and she didn't have a peace. But I believe that you submit to those that's in authority over you because that's what the Scripture says. So they told me to go, so I went. But sometimes when man sends you and God didn't send you, come on now. That isn't such a pretty good idea. 
And so we got there, and it didn't turn out so pretty good. We wound up in an assembly of God. I'd never, I'd never been in an assembly of God church in my life. And God just began to move in our, in our life through the assemblies of God. And I'm like, I became aware of what it was and who it was. And, and the pastor there, he encouraged me to go. I went to Berean and went on, took two courses. What I didn't realize is God was getting everything in order to do something that's going to be futuristic. So after I realized I'm in, I'm in the wrong place here, I said, God, I, I got to do something. This is just not working. And so I went on a fast, a total fast, nothing but water. I'm like, God, I've got to hear from you. And on the fifth day, I heard two things. One's not really relevant to the message this morning, but the other one says, God says, go home and get your house in order. And I almost had to chuckle. I'm like, God, where is home? Home is where my hat's hanging. I've never had a home. I don't know what you're talking about, go home. Well, only thing I conclude is it means go back to the south because I was in the north and that was not where I was supposed to be. I'm southern born and southern bred, and when I die, I'll be southern dead, you know. <laughs> and so I packed up and we, we moved back home. And, and uh, we've been here in this community now for 34 years. I mean, I, eight years was my record in one place, you know, and now for 34 years we have called this place home. But church, let me tell you something. This is not my permanent residence. Are you hearing me, church? This is not my permanent residence. And I wonder if the foolish virgins forgot the place where they supposed to wait was just temporary. It's just a waiting place. The wise virgins had one thing on their mind. We are only here until the bridegroom comes, and we have to be ready to meet him because they realize this is just a temporary waiting place. I believe the patriarchs and our early church fathers, they, uh, they understood this because they had a total different mindset than what we have. And I think maybe we just need to reprioritize the way we think about how we're going to spend our 86,400 seconds every day. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, it says, by, a by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he would receive as his inheritance. And he went, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. See, even though he knew this is his inheritance on earth, to him, it was still just a foreign country. He was a foreigner there, a stranger and a sojourner, because he didn't consider that home. He was dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, for he waited for a city which had foundations whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him a good as dead were born as many as the stars of the skies and multitude innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Verse 13 it says, And all these died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, they embraced them, and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they're seeking a homeland. 
Church, they weren't comfortable in their 34-year home here in Central Virginia. They're seeking something else. Verse 15, and they truly, if they had called to mind the country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared a city for them. Church, heaven is our home. And in this modern day church, I believe we forget that. We get our eyes off of what is important. We're waiting for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. This is not my home. I love where I live. I enjoy it, but it's not my home. It's just temporary. I'm just waiting there till the bridegroom shows up. Now, I own my home here in Central Virginia, but in truth, it's just a rental. A place where we're waiting for the bridegroom. It's temporary. This place that I'm living in right now, it belongs to this world. And when Jesus shows up, if you're still here, you can have it. Because it belongs to this world. Now, let me ask you a question. How many people would spend everything that you have, all of your time, all of your energy, all of your money, remodeling somebody else's house. You're going to rent a house, you're going to spend all your time, money, and energy remodeling their house, and then they tell you to get out because I need the house. It's like, wait a minute, I don't spend all my money. It doesn't matter, it doesn't belong to you. It's somebody else's house. I wouldn't do that. Church, if I'm going to invest in it, I want to own it. I don't want to just rent it. I want to own it. But some Christians are investing everything in this place called earth. You say, yeah, but pastor, I can't see heaven. Neither could Abraham. But he said in verse 13, they all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen it afar off. How do I see my home? By faith, I see it. Just like Abraham, by faith, he saw it. That the whole chapter of Hebrews 11 is talking about faith. It's the substance of things that we hope for. It's the evidence of things that I can't see with my natural eye. But I know that it's real just as if I could touch it like it has substance. I could use it as a case in court. It's the evidence. That's how real it is to you and I. This is not our home because your permanent address is in heaven. And this was the mindset of the early church fathers up until recent history. And there has been a shifting in the way we think in the modern-day church, in the mindset of the modern-day church. All other generations were heavenly-minded. But we are now focused on this life, and we have all but forgotten what we are really here for. We're here to make heaven our eternal home. It has been the goal of the church throughout all of history. If you go into the catacombs underneath Jerusalem, when the, when the first church was, was birthed, it was under persecution even by the Sanhedrin. If you remember, the apostle Paul had papers on his way to Damascus to arrest the Christians there and have them brought and tried and some of them put to death. And so the church had to go underground, literally. 
They went into the catacombs, into the graves, and the tombs underneath there. And if you go in there, what you will see is artwork, and almost all of the artwork is about heaven because that was their mindset. We're just passing through here. We are bit, we're not laying up our treasures on earth where rust and dust corrupts and thieves break into steel. We're laying up our treasures in heaven where rust and dust cannot corrupt. Thieves cannot steal it. The first Christians su succeeded in, this, in their infancy in part because they focused on the other world called heaven. In the church I've seen in my lifetime this shifting take place. Because in my early life, when you came into church, most of the songs that we sang, songs are a reflection of what's in your spirit. Uh, and most of the songs that we sang was about heaven. Let me just give you a few examples. Just build my mansion next door to Jesus. It says, I'm satisfied with just a cottage below, a little silver and a little gold. But someday yonder where the ransom will shine, I've got a gold one that's silver lined. Just build my mansion next door to Jesus and tell the angels I'm coming home. Someday yonder where I will never more wonder. Another one is this, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. On that bright and cloudless morning when the dead in Christ shall rise and the glory of his resurrection share, when the chosen ones are gathered on the, uh, on the, uh, uh, yonder the, on the other shore, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. How about this? Some of you, as I'm reading this, the songs are going off in your heads. Amen. This is, I remember Jeannie and I went to this one little church, a little independent church out in the country, and this gal, she used to be a honky-tonk country western singer. And God got a hold of her light and saved her, and she started singing for Jesus. And boy, she had that country twang, and she said, I got more to go to heaven for than I had yesterday. She said, there's a brand-new angel in the choir, and I want to hear her sing. <laughs> Here's another one. I want to stroll over heaven with you some sweet day when all our heartaches and trouble will surely vanish away. When we enjoy all the beauty where all things are new, I want to stroll over heaven with you. How about this? I can almost see the lights of that city. That was an old gospel song. John tells of a city that he saw coming down where no death, no sorrow will be known. And someday we can go there through God's marvelous grace and live in that heavenly home. I can almost see the lights of that city. I see them gathered all around the great white throne. With faith in my Savior and his wonderful love, I can almost see the lights of home. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. How many of you know that one? What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. I remember as a small little boy, they had this guy come to my dad's church. He was an African-American gentleman. His name was Willie, and he'd get up and sing, I'll fly away, oh, glory. And when he'd do that, I'll, he'd just, I'll, you thought he was going to pass out. Fly away, oh, glory. I'll fly away someday yonder. Hebrews 13, we see another song right straight out of Hebrews 13. It says, in the sweet by and by, we will meet on that beautiful shore. Another one, there is a land that is fairer than day, and by faith we can see it afar. For the Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there in the sweet by and by. 
And then in modern, in the 1970s, they started singing, The King is Coming. How many of you remember that one? The King is Coming, The King is Coming. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the King. Another gospel, I'll meet you in the morning. Jesus is coming soon, morning or night or noon. All of those songs were reflection of the mindset of the church. So what happened? There was a shifting came in the mindset of the church because there was a teaching that came on the scene, and instead of focusing on heavenly things, it was focusing on earthly things. And they would say things like, I'm not thinking about the sweet by and by. I'm focusing on the blessed here and now. God wants to bless you. He wants to make you rich. If you name it and you claim it, God will give it to you. It was all their message was about prosperity. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow abundantly, you'll reap abundantly. You give money to my ministry, and God will give it back to you a hundredfold. And I would listen to that. I was caught up in it. I was a part of it. Jeannie and I was very deeply involved in it, and I kept thinking, something about this just doesn't sound right in my spirit. Why do I have to give money to you? The Bible says if I turn my ear against the poor, then I will cry out and not be heard. How about let me give the money to the poor? Then God can give back to me. No, you got to give it to my ministry, and then God will give it back to you. And you got to give it in abundance because if you spare so sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. So you got to give me lots of money because it's all about money cometh. Bless me now. It was all, the message of that was about me, me, me to make me healthy, wealthy, and powerful here and now. And that became the focus. Biggest focus was earthly-minded thinking. Not looking for the bridegroom, but what's good for me. I've seen it. People going out and walking around the car. In Jesus' name, that's my car. I already by faith see my name on the title. It's mine. Jesus is going to give it to me, expecting God to give them that car without even working for it. Because if you've got enough faith, God will give it to you. And it was all about what God's going to do for me here and now. And I fear if the bridegroom would have showed up, they'd still been walking around that car saying, boy, I sure want that car. I'm going to need something to get out of this tribulation. Are you hearing me, church? The first believers must have missed the teaching of that somehow because they were heavenly-minded almost constantly. They were looking for the blessed hope. And I believe that God is saying we need to get back to a heavenly mindset. Wise virgins look for the bridegroom to return. Jesus said, Watch therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. Now, there's a balance in that. I understand that. But mostly, we need to have a heavenly mindset. And if you do that, it'll help you prioritize your life. Now, we don't like to talk about death. Death is not a subject in any... I don't... I probably stand at the head of that line. I, those, the sad things... I, we're looking at our dog this week. Brute's getting old. He's the best dog we have ever had. When I was 10 years old, we moved from the mountains of North Carolina. I was a hillbilly, to and through. And we moved to the eastern part of the state. And I'm telling you, culture shock just about knocked me out. I was totally out of place. 
And the kids made fun of the way I talked, so I tried to learn how to pick up the dialect where I was at because I didn't want to sound real funny, you know, and they was making fun of me, you know. <laughs> and so, so my, my wife, when I met her, she made fun of the way I talked. <laughs> I must have been so good looking, though, she couldn't help herself. You know? <laughs> but we moved away, and all I had was my little dog. I didn't have any friends. I had my dog, you know. And I watched a car smack him in the highway. And there's just something inside of me. I would not let myself get attached to an animal after that. But I didn't got attached to this one. And we were talking about it this week. It's like, man, I don't even want to think about him getting old. You know, one day he's going to die. Death is not something we like to think about. But church, I, I got some news for you. Ten out of ten people die. Nobody, unless Jesus comes, nobody's getting out of here alive. We're all going to die. At funerals, people don't like to think about it. They talk about, well, they passed away. They've gone on. They've crossed over. They make the guy look as alive as possible. But 100 and 200 years ago, it was different. Old merchants would write in their ledger books on the very first page a phrase, memento mori. It came from a Roman emperor, well, a Roman general, and he would ride into the city after a great victory in battle. And he had a guy that would walk behind him, and he would recite something in Latin. Respice poste hominem, te esse memento, memento mori. And what it means in a very, just a broad sense is, look behind you and remember that you're mortal. Remember that you're a man. Remember that you too could die. In other words, the next time you go in battle, it may be you that falls in battle. Remember, you're not all that. You're immortal. And one day you are going to die, so you need to keep focused on what happens after that. And that phrase became, it went viral, if you would put it in today's terms. Memento more. It was the philosophical mindset of every generation up until now. But today, we are pursuing life so fully that I think we've, we ignore the fact that we are memento mori. We need to remember death. No matter how great you've got it right now, one day all of that's going to pass away. All the things we're investing so much time and so much energy and so much money into, it's all temporal. Church, I remember the day that God touched my heart. I said I would never pastor. Well, be careful when you say never. Because I was very content. I've always been happy just to be a Joshua. You know, I didn't want to be the Moses. Just, I just help you do it. All right? And I'm still that way. I would be very content to help somebody else do it. But I remember the day I was working, and I'd finished welding something. You've heard this many times. And I, I looked at it as like, and that, that thing looks good. It'll be when you're dead and gone, Nukem. And the Spirit of the Lord says, it will melt like fervent heat. And the reality of how temporal everything I was doing just come crashing in. And I remember I looked at Mike Amos, a mechanic out in the shop, and Fast Eddie walked through. He was another welder. Fast Eddie, he was always slow, you know. We call him Fast Eddie. Great guy. I loved him. I said, Eddie, look here, man. I said, look around you. I said, everything that I'm doing right here, everything we're doing, it's all temporal. He was a Christian by word. I don't know about by action. But, and I pointed at Mike. I said, that's eternal. I said, that's what we need to be working on right there, not this. And God changed my heart. 
because my focus was in the wrong place. I was spending too much time on things that didn't matter, not enough time on things that are eternal. So it's not <clears throat> that we want to focus on death itself, but it's when heaven and hell is real, it overshadows every priority in our life. When I die, not if I die, but when I die, what then? It makes us remember that life that I am living is just preparing me for eternity because the bride is coming. The question is, are we ready to go out and meet him? Jerome, who was one of the early church fathers, he's the one that translated the, the Greek, <coughs> I'm sorry, the Hebrew and, and uh, uh, the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek and Latin. He would place a skull on his desk. And he left it sitting on his desk. It sat on his desk. This sits on my desk. After I heard that, my wife went and got that for me. It's not a real skull. It's plastic, just so you know. I'm not, like, morbid. His was real. I don't know who's poor guy that, that donated the skull for him. But anyway, he set a skull on his desk. <clears throat> and it was there to remind him of that phrase, memento mori. It was a constant reminder that this is temporal. Death is coming. I must labor for the master now because one day we will be dead and then eternity begins. Yeah. I want everybody to do something. I want everybody, I'm going to count to three. One, two, three. When I say three, I want you to blink your eyes like that and open them back up fast as you can. Ready? One, two, three, blink. Now, if you live to be 98 years old, that blink is one six billionth if you can even write that number down, of, your life, of that lifespan. The reason I say 98 is because I, I, I mentioned this last week. I went to see a pastor friend of mine. He was, he was 98, turning 99 years old. He would planted four churches in his life. And he said, Bernie, they voted me out of a church. I'm like, Pastor, really? He's like, yeah. He said, but you know, I'm thinking maybe about, about planting another church. 98 years old. I'm thinking about planting another church. And I believe, he said, but Sister Bev, don't, she don't think we're up to it. Sister Bev was his 95-year-old wife. And they were still driving. They drove all the way to Williamsburg to visit the church that he planted. He planted one in Williamsburg. He planted one in um, somewhere up in northern Virginia. I forget now. But he planted four different churches, and, and they're huge churches now. And so he was 98 years old, and I thought his life compared to eternity is shorter than that blink. We think of life, 98 years, that's a long time to be on earth compared to eternity. John Bevere, he does a series called Driven by Eternity, and he's an engineer. As you know, engineers have to have a degree in mathematics. And he said they learned in their mathematical training that any number, no matter how great it is, times infinity equals zero. You say 100 quadrillion. That's one followed by 14 zeros. Times eternity, it equals zero. We can't really con get a concept of what eternity is like, but it's just a blink. Our time here is just a blink. And we spend our time here investing so much in a rental. We're all guilty of this. I'm not throwing stones. We're all guilty of this. But if we remember heaven, it will help us prioritize life. And there's benefits from turning your thinking towards heaven. It'll help you in crisis. 
When we look at the trials that we face now compared to the trials of the generation that made heaven their mindset, what was the difference? We're looking at the problems in America today, the whole LGBTQ plus thing that's going on, the black life matters, the black lives do matter. But I'm talking about that movement. Its roots are in evil. The critical race theory, the gender identity, the corruption in politics, the council culture, the censorship, the attack on marriage, redefining families, Russia going into Ukraine, China rattling its sword and threatening a, the world, basically. The Golan Heights, and every day they're firing missiles into Israel. COVID, I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And we get our mind on that. But church, it's been bad before. And sometimes I think we forget this. In World War II, there was 55 million people died. 55 million people died. 292,000 American soldiers died. Six million Jews died. The Black Plague, the Bubonic Plague, the called Black Death, 75 million people died in that plague. COVID wasn't anything to that. Now, don't get me started on that hoax of COVID. But in, in, in early days, women having children. Jeannie's got a book on her family heritage, and it's, some of the men in there had three, four wives. And the reason is because they're otherwise died in childbirth. The pilgrim's mortality rate, 50 out of 102 people died. You say, my goodness, how did they deal with this crisis? Ecclesiastes 7.1 says, a good name is better than precious ointments, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Because they didn't have their eyes focused on this life. Their eyes was focused on something else. The day that I die is better than the day that I was born. If you're a Christian, something better is waiting for you. I, it, it's so, so easy for me as a pastor when I know the person that we are doing the funeral for is a devout believer in Jesus Christ because I can say with confidence that we don't sorrow as those that have no hope. Yes. Because while we grieve our loss, I rejoice for this brother or sister. Because, brother, I can tell you, if they had an option to come back here, they would tell you, no, thank you. We've heard it said, well, so-and-so is so heavenly-minded that there are no earthly good. Church, there is no such thing to be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. I've known people that are so earthly-minded that they're no heavenly good. So let me close with this. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he said, I am about to die, and you're going to be arrested and killed. And Jesus left, and after he left, they did suffer. They suffered. Andrew was crucified. Bartholomew was beaten and crucified. Son of Alphaeus, James, was stoned to death. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded. John was boiled in oil. Wouldn't hurt him, so they took him out on an island, and, and he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And even there, God showed up and gave him a vision of what's coming. Amen. Judas, not Iscariot, was stoned to death. Matthew was speared to death. Peter was crucified upside down. Philip, Simon, both were crucified. Thomas was speared to death. Matthias was stoned to death. 
these all suffered. You say, well, how did they get through that? They remembered the words of Jesus. John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Because in my Father's house, guys, in my Father's house, there are many dwellings, many mansions. He didn't say, I'm going to bless you and give you a mansion here. In my Father's house, there's many mansions. They didn't think about what they had here. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. Why? Because this is not your place. My place is there. If when I saw, I would have told you. If I go, I'm going to bring, come again and bring you into myself that where I am there, you may be also. Now, church, there are some beautiful places on this earth. We were watching a, a documentary the other day, and they were showing the Mediterranean Sea. And I'm looking at that, I'm like, that water is so crystal clear. That was just breathtaking. My son-in-law did a screensaver on my computer. When I opened it up, it's different scenery all around the world. And, and I opened it up this week, and it's a, it's a place in, somewhere in the Oriental country, and the whole mountainside is dug out, and there's pools of water and terraces all down the side of that mountain where they raise rice. And I'm looking at that, I'm like, there are so many beautiful things in this world. How long did it take Jesus to make that? How long did it take God to create the earth? Six days, right? Look how beautiful it is in six days. The thing about this, he's been working on my mansion for 2,000 years. Huh? What's it going to look like? What's heaven going to look like? He says, eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither has it entered into the hearts of men what I've gone to prepare for you, brother. I'm going to tell you what, there's some breathtaking, beautiful things on this earth, but it does not compare to what's waiting for us in heaven according to his word, which I happen to believe by faith. So we need to set our mind on the things above, not on the things beneath. Colossians 3 says this, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things that are above, where Christ is, seated on the right hand of God. Set your mind. Everybody say that with me. Set your mind. It's a mindset. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you die, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, the balance in this is you can enjoy the things that you have. I enjoy my front porch in my carpenter shop. I enjoy that. Why? 1 Timothy 6, 17 says, Charge them that are rich in this world. Look at your neighbor. Say, neighbor, he's talking about you. Because if you're born in America, friend, you're rich. Are you hearing me? I got up the other day. I went in there and got me a slice of bread out of a bag full of bread. Put me some mayonnaise on that thing. Went to a refrigerator and got cold drinks out of a cold refrigerator. Went over to the sink and got running water. Turned the thermostat, I got air conditioning, climate control. Church, we're rich. Are you hearing me? We're blessed abundantly above and beyond what we could ask or think for, think of. So he said, charge them that are rich. 1 Timothy 6, 17. 
in this world, that's you and I, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. My trust is in him, but listen, he gave me those things to enjoy. I'm not saying you can't enjoy the things of this earth, but we need to have it in balance. I enjoy those things, but they don't possess me. That's not my priority. My priority is people. And he, what did he say? Go preach the gospel and make disciples. That should be our priority. So in concluding, we don't walk around thinking about dying, memento mori, but we should measure everything by eternity. Everything that we do, what difference does this make in eternity? The arguments that we have and people getting mad and unforgiveness and all that, how does that affect eternity? Everything should be measured by eternity. And brother, I'm going to tell you what, I don't want to miss heaven for nobody. I don't want to be the foolish virgin. I want to be the wise virgin. So everything in this life, it's all going to pass away. All the problems that we're having, all the politics, it's all going to pass away. Democrat, Republicans, they're all going to pass away. What President Carter did, gone. Reagan, gone. Bush wanted to, gone. Clinton, gone. Obama, gone. Trump, yeah, everything he did too is gone. Biden, gone. All the world crisis, gone. The house is so all important to us, gone. That car you want that you can't afford, gone. It's all going to pass away. What are you investing in? Are we investing in a rental or a permanent address in heaven? How do you invest in it? Souls. You invest in souls, in one another. The reason I gave up my secular job and took a job as a pastor, because I wanted to invest in you. I want to make disciples out of you. The reason I'm standing here this morning, because you matter to me. I want to stroll over heaven with you some sweet day when all our sorrows and troubles have truly vanished away. So we can all enjoy all the beauty where all things are new. I want to stroll over heaven with you. Amen? That's what's important. Count Nicholas Zindoffer. Count Nicholas Zindoffer. He was one of the head of the Moravian missionaries. He was one of the men that took the two missionaries to the ship who had sold themselves into slavery because they'd heard about this island, and on this island it was slaves, and they would not allow anybody to bring the gospel onto the island. They wouldn't allow pastors or missionaries there. So they said, well, the only way we can carry the gospel of Jesus Christ there is if we ourselves are slaves. So they sold themselves into slavery. One of them was married and had a child. The other one was a single man. They sold themselves into slavery, took the money that they had got for themselves and paid for the fare on the ship to get there. As they were on the ship selling away, they're looking at their family knowing they're never going to see them again in this life. They said this famous phrase that became the Moravian cry. May the Lord Jesus Christ receive the reward of his suffering. 
and they sailed off into the distance. Count Nicholas Zinzerdorf, he said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That was his philosophy in life. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Why? Because church, when I die, my children will probably remember me, my grandchildren, maybe my great-grandchildren, but after that I'll be forgotten. But you know what? The day I die, the next day, forget me. Because it's not about me. It's not about you. Paul said, may I decrease and let Jesus Christ increase. Preach the gospel. Forget about you and remember Jesus Christ. That's what's important. Finally, let me me go over this last thing. This is a true story. Ruth Ann Medsker. She was a professional singer. She sang at a wedding of a millionaire. They went to a luxurious red carpet reception. The top two floors of the Seattle Columbia Tower, the northwest tallest skyscraper. They had eye sculptures. It was a black tie event, very exotic foods. The man at the door, a lovingly blonde, uh, uh, had a lovingly bound book. He greeted her and her husband at the top of the stairs. He said, quote, may I have your name, please? She said, I am Ruth Ann Metzger. He couldn't find her name. Could you spell it, please? She spelled it. Still, he couldn't find it. I'm sorry, ma'am, but your name is not here, and without your name in this book, you cannot attend this banquet. She said, there must be some kind of mistake. I sang at the wedding. The groom knows me. He invited me. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Without your name in this book, you cannot attend this banquet. She said, I thought about running past the gentleman to the groom. I could see him sitting right there. But with 100 guests on the stairs behind us and the tables full, I just stood there in silence. The man motioned for a waiter and said, show this couple to the service elevator, please. We walked past the beautiful decorated tables, ice sculptures, even an orchestra. We were led to a service elevator, and the waiter himself pressed the G for garage. My husband didn't say a word, nor did I. We drove out of the garage of the Columbia Tower. We both remained silent for several miles Then Roy reached over and gently put his arm on my arm. He said, sweetheart, what happened? Then I remembered when the invitation arrived for the reception, I was too busy. And I didn't bother to return the RSVP. Besides, I was the singer. Surely I could get into the reception without returning the RSVP. As we drove on, I began to weep. I was not weeping because I had missed the most lavish banquet of my life. I was weeping because I suddenly realized what it would be like for people as they stood before the entrance of heaven, people who were so busy to respond to the Christian invitation to the heavenly banquet, people who assumed that the good things they had done, perfect attendance, or even singing God's praises in church would be enough to gain entrance into heaven people who will look for their name in the Lamb's Book of Life, but not find it there. People who did not take the time to respond to Christ's gracious invitation. Would you stand with me, please?
you know, <clears throat> if you just bow your head and, and, and hear me, I, I'm, I'm certain that the majority of the people in here, you, you've committed your life to Christ at some point in your life. As I had as a young man, Church, there was a time in my life that I would have fit into the foolish virgin category. Because as a young boy, I committed my life to Christ. And I was sincere in that commitment. I wanted to live for Jesus. But I was like that seed that was thrown on the thorny grounds. I wasn't really moved by the deceitful of riches, but the, the cares of this life consumed me. I, there were so many things I wanted to go and do and experience. If Jesus would have come, I am certain I would have been left behind. Now, I don't know where any of you are living. I don't know where you're at in your walk with Christ or if you are even a professing Christian. But if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, church, I don't want to use scare tactics to try to scare you into the kingdom, but the reality of what we're talking about this morning, you might be a heartbeat away from eternity. I was talking to a man this week. I won't reveal who it is, but we were talking about his wife. She passed away 55 years old. He said she died in her sleep from a heart attack. In her sleep. She went to bed that night thinking, I'm going to get a rest. I'm going to get up tomorrow. Probably had the day planned. Tomorrow never came. Jesus said, no man knoweth the hour in which the Son of Man cometh. Whether he comes to take the church out or where he comes and calls your name. There should be nothing in this life more important than your spiritual growth. You need to be born again. And if you haven't done that, why not today? Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. So I'd appeal to those who's listening to the sound of my voice, whether you're in this room or you're listening on the Internet. If you don't know Christ, make that your number one priority. You need to be born again. You need to be in the wedding party. You need to have your lamp with a light burning, your life as a testimony of Jesus Christ, that he's real in your life. And what I can tell you is that if you just reach out to Jesus in sincerity, he said, any man that comes to me with a contrite spirit and a broken heart, I will in no wise turn away. If you're sincere, there is no power on earth that can stop you from being born of his spirit if you will call out to him. He said, as many as believed on him, to them gave he power to be the sons of God. He gives you the power to be his son because you trusted in him. And if you will do that, listen to me. God will change your spirit inside of you. Sometimes it's physical. You can even feel the change, the transformation that takes place when his spirit and your spirit become one. And he says, if the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, it will quicken. It will make alive your mortal body. It'll put life in you, spiritual life. So I invite you to do that today. We're waiting for the bridegroom. And if you're here this morning and you've been foolish, you're like you've bought into this whole shifting that took place in the, in the church, the modern-day church, and you got your eyes so much focused on this world and, and what I can get out of this life. I encourage you to reset your mind, and let's get our focus back on eternity and heavenly things and the things that I do. How does this affect eternity?
So this morning, I can tell you that you can assure that heaven will be your home. Because I don't know what it would be like to think about standing at the door and hearing him say, I'm sorry, but your name's not here. And if your name is not in this book, you cannot enter in. I don't want to think about what it's like to look at a loved one and say, I don't know where they are. Where are they going to spend eternity? So all we need to understand is heaven is perfect and man is sinful. And God cannot allow sin into heaven. So something has to be done with that sin. And what we need to realize in the gospel is 2,000 years ago, God sent a man to take that sin upon himself so that I don't have to have it anymore. And if you just put your faith in Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I ask you to forgive me of my sin. God, I'm sorry that I've sinned against you, and I'm asking you to forgive me and to come into my life and live in my heart. God, I give my life to you, Lord, and from this day forward, I want to serve you for the rest of my life. If you can just do that simple prayer, God will transform you. Amen. Now, I'm going to leave that with you because if it's real, it's going to be real with you. Amen. I like that old song. I got more to go to heaven for than I had yesterday. We got 53 brand new brothers and sisters in Christ because of Chi Alpha. Uh, we got 53 brand new brothers and sisters because of their faithfulness. And I believe today that some more people just came into the kingdom. We may not know who that is. Because it's not about what we've done. It's about what he's doing. Amen. And someday we're going to get to meet all of them. Praise God. I could tell you some other stuff, but I'm going to stop there. Father, we just thank you. God, we thank you today, Lord, for the time in your word. God, your word is yes and amen. It's true, God. It's true whether we believe it or true whether we don't believe it. It's still true. God, there's some people that I know, Lord, and they've turned away from you, God, and there's some bad things going on in their life. Lord, I lift them up to you, God. You remember this week, Lord. I prayed for them by name. God, I lift them up again, Father. Touch their heart, Lord. God, help them. God, help them. I want to stroll over heaven with them too, Lord. And, Father, if there's people in here, I don't know if it's personal life. God, I pray that you transform our hearts. Lord, help us to get our mindset right now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We come in praising and we leave praising. So, Hunter, take us to the throne, brother. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a Sing with me. I raise a hallelujah.
Amen, amen. I'm going to have them do one more song. I think it will just go along perfect with the message this morning. There ain't no grave can hold me down. Amen. Can we do that before we go out and eat some fried chicken? Well, the chicken's not here yet anyway, so we've got to stall a minute or two. <laughs> Amen. Cut loose, girl. Shame is a prison as cruel as a grave. Shame is a robber and he's come to take my name. But love is my redeemer, lifting me up from the ground. Love is the power where my freedom song is found. There ain't no
what you call taking the pitchfork and sticking the devil in the eye with it. Amen. Praise God. Father, we just thank you for our time together, Lord. God, we thank you, Lord, that we have a time of fellowship. God, we pray, Lord, that you will just bless our time together, Lord, as we get to know each other better, Lord, as we sit around and break bread. God, we thank you, Lord, that you provide all of our needs according to your riches and glory. And today, God, you provide this meal for us, Lord. Now, Father, I pray over the body of Christ, Lord, of every home that is represented here today, God. I pray a blessing over them, God. May their home be a refuge, God. May it be an escape from the world, a place where the Holy Spirit is welcome. God, I pray that you strengthen the family today, husbands and their wives, parents and their children, siblings, one with each other. God, I pray, Lord, that you would just bless those, God, that's walking their journey alone, Lord, and they're looking for their mate. Father, you just made their paths across, Father, so they can find the right person, God, the person that you have for them, Lord. They can start their journey together. Lord, and if they're content, Lord, to be like Paul, Lord, and just walk their journey alone, God, then you be their mate and be their help, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. God bless you, church. Jesus, Gospel is free.